This is Thomas DePoe. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. On this episode of The Green Box, we discuss what works and doesn't work about Delta Green's permanent injury system and include a side conversation about balancing agent drawbacks and disadvantages at character creation. Then, Tom gets us talking about criticals and fumbles, and how to recover when the dice give you an unexpected result. But before we get into any of that, an announcement. The Green Box is now on Patreon. You can find our page in the description of this episode, or at patreon.com slash retirement. And if you like what we do and have some pocket change to get rid of, you can send it our way. We'd still make this podcast even without Patreon, so please don't feel any obligation to pledge. We have some plans for the future that will happen regardless of patron funding, but might now happen a little sooner. Have a look at our page to learn more. That's enough shameless self-promotion for one episode. Let's get to the part you actually came here for. There are rare occasions in which an agent may not have the good fortune to die and will have to limp on regardless of whatever horrible thing you as the handler have decided to do to them. Uh, So I'm questioning you, gentlemen. How horrible do you get with permanent injuries for player characters? So The way the permanent injury mechanics work in Delta Green is you get reduced to 2 HP or less, knocked unconscious, then you need to make a constitution saving throw, and if you fail to save, there are two possibilities for what happens to you. If you're using the default game rules, then you take the number on the die and lose that many points from a randomly selected stat. If you are using the optional rules, rather than losing stat points, you can instead lose a body part so you character might lose their eyeball, their ear, or hearing in, in an ear, a hand, foot, or arm, leg. The game doesn't really distinguish between the limb and the appendage. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I've ever inflicted a permanent injury on a player because I always forget the rule exists and I have enough to do in combat. And I don't think any of my characters have ever suffered one, which might be a function of not playing in a long-form campaign. But uh, I'm interested to learn more could just be a function of the lethality system doing its fucking job. Here's the thing about permanent injuries is that they're, I, I like them as a rule because I, you don't roll for them until you wake up. That way they don't happen in the middle of combat, so you don't have to remember them. Yeah, it's some good conservation of playtime there. Oh, I didn't even notice that, but that is a really good way of handling it. I don't it. even know if that's how it's written, but that's how I do it, because why would it matter whether you were horribly injured if you're not able to play the game during the combat encounter? Not only do I like that rule for permanent injuries, I have started to use it for disorders for sanity loss as well. Uh, that is, the rules is written, that's how disorders work. So we've, we've had this debate before of whether disorders are best given out immediately or whether they're best given out at the end of the session. Rules is written as if, they, as if disorders wait until the end to manifest. Right. Which is what, which I like because it means don't flip through the book in the middle of the game session in order to find an appropriate uh, narrative consequence. In any case, um, with respect to permanent injury versus stat loss, uh, it has come up once or twice in games that I run. In each case, I have given the choice to the player. So, you know, do you want a permanent injury? Here are some of the example ones, or I can make one up. Or do you want to just eat the stat loss? 
and every time, as far as I can recall, they've come with a permanent injury, probably because that's more narratively interesting. It's more narratively interesting, but I had an agent that suffered from one. Uh, he went blind after being poisoned, so he went blind in one nice. eye after being poisoned. So he walks so he's a helicopter pilot with one eye and an eye Ooh. patch. So his death perception Helicopter really pilot with no depth perception. That's not good. Uh, do you know offhand how much of a stat loss is it? Is it a D something or is it... It is, if you fail the contest, it's whatever the number on the lower die is. So if you roll, say, a 91, then you lose one. If you roll 57, you lose five. Jesus. So, I mean, if it was like one to three, I mean, maybe dex as it affects your issue, but otherwise, most stats just don't come up in gameplay very often. You know, after a couple sessions, your your charisma is is not going to... Like, your bonds are not going to be at your charisma. They're going to be lower anyway. Losing charisma doesn't hurt. Well, here's the thing. When you lose points from your charisma, you lose the same number of points from your bonds. Not from the maximum capacity of your bonds, but from your current bond value. Is that rules as written, or is that only for adaptation purposes? I'm getting it from adaptation. I assumed it would work the same way. Yeah, I thought it was a general rule about stat loss. Well, no, because losing power doesn't make you lose um, sanity. Losing power doesn't affect your sanity, but it changes your breaking point and your willpower. I'm reading the rules for permanent injury, and it says the only the only one that it mentions going down as a result of the loss is HP. So I guess the general rule. What would the the general rule be? It just for that? lowers the ceiling rather, and if the new ceiling is lower than your current stat, your current derived stat, your derived stat goes down. But if it's not, you don't do anything. That's how I would run it. Is if you lose ca- if you lose charisma, you lose from your bond as well. Well, that's worth finding out. Yeah, yeah, that's, that uh, would make a big difference because you know if you go from you know, 15 strength to hell, even like 10 strength, that's re- that's unlikely going to affect your character very often. But if you lose an eye, you, all ton of your rolls are at negative 20. So if you're purely metagaming, taking the stat loss is usually, or it's probably almost always better. Yeah, I like stat damage because in the long term, I think it's more survivable, but it still has an effect. Like losing strength or con that comes off your maximum HP. If you lose POW, that comes off your willpower and you start hitting breaking points sooner. And it kind of feeds into the idea of the slow degradation of your character as you keep going on Delta Green missions. See, I I never bothered with the rules for numeric decline, though. I never thought that the stat damage rules were very interesting and I always default to the um, physical injuries. It's definitely just like your disorders. It's something that uh, it's probably enhanced when a player buys into it more. So let me ask you this. You're, you have a character who loses a leg like at the ankle. So they take the appropriate damage and whatnot. Then they go get uh, one of those one of those like curvy, sick prosthetics, and they take the time to get special training in it. Oh, it's... What, what's what's that, that guy's name? Uh, Pistorius, the guy who shot his girlfriend in an yeah. air quote yeah. accident. Yeah. <laughs> so if they took the special training in it to showcase that they're like, getting good with it, would you let them negate the... Like, like zero out the injury, essentially? Uh, no. Um, I'd say that they need to take, like, the improve a stat home pursuit and, or you know, you could flavor it as, like, surgery or something. But they haven't, if they've taken the injury, they haven't lost a stat, right? So you're saying if you run it as you get that minus 20 modifier, can you take the special training to negate the modifier? Yeah, because I do know that there have been cases where people with prosthetics 
have outperformed their old non-prosthetic selves because like they're just like they can be mechanically better a pair of prosthetic legs is um of the, of the running type is mechanically superior to knees that's that's yeah. unquestionably true in terms of just running in a straight line. That's why the Blade Runner was so fast and why he was faster than normal people. I don't think I would allow you to negate the penalty like that because while it might be completely true in reality, the game is not necessarily reality. I want the game to be a reflection of those themes. I'm trying to think of another good example where you could get like just as good uh, with a, like repairing an injury and then making the argument that you're back to normal. Because it would take... Melon let me do this in a game once. I had an agent who lost an arm. Um, or maybe it wasn't Melon, maybe it was somebody else. Maybe Melon was just in that it was, game. It was, it was Q, I think, and he said, right. you can take special training to get one skill at your normal level using your prosthetic arm. And I think you picked unarmed, and so we said that you had a mean right hook. Yeah. <laughs> you picked unarmed for the person that was disarmed? Disarmed, yes. Okay, I actually do like that, that you can train with the prosthetic to negate the penalty for one skill or one circumstance. Yeah, I did it as a, as a special training home scene option, which, you know, that's another thing we've talked about. If the, yeah, in my mind, if somebody's going to trade away their home scenes to work on the injury, it, you know, maybe one-to-one is, is not appropriate. Like, you know, one training negates everything, but maybe, all right, every time you take the training, you can negate for one skill or for or maybe, you know, take it three times, do you know, instead of once to negate the issue, et cetera. Totally throw off my train of thought. If we're talking about ways to kind of repair permanent injuries, uh, there's, uh, I guess I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here because uh, Tom and I had been keeping it a secret, but Cassius, my helicopter guy, isn't really blind anymore because he made a deal with a wizard, but he still puts on the the uh, eye patch because he didn't want other agents to know that, you know, uh, he took a deal with the devil. So that could be, you know, if the handler wants to uh, create kind of like a whole little mini thing for a player, then taking a deal with the devil for uh, getting your, uh, making yourself whole again, that's another option, right? Yeah, there's like however many different ways of bringing people back from the dead in the Cthulhu mythos. So it's really not that big a stretch to offer a player a little bit of magic to heal themselves. Or uh, just to use it to blackmail them. I'll give you what you want, but now you owe me something. And now that technically makes my helicopter pilot a warlock with a patron, right? Hmm. Uh, I guess. So I guess if you're going to let magic magic go with the problem, then you should also let willpower slash technology slash home seems away the problem in some ratio. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but not as perfectly and not as uh, effectively. Well, quote-unquote perfect, right? There's a price. It's perfect as long as you keep them happy. It's perfect as long as you don't stop to think about it. I, one thing I probably would, if, if I was going to take away the agency of like a player's arm, eye, ear, whatever, definitely give them the choice uh, of what, you know, based on the injury... Obviously, if you get knocked down to one HP because you got attacked by a chainsaw, man, you know, you want to lose a limb perhaps. But if you got knocked down by like a huge concussion or explosion, maybe deafness or whatever. But I would definitely give them the choice because it's going to be a permanent or semi-permanent kind of stain on their character. What if they got they got, they got hit by a big explosion and now it like ruptured all their insides and they just have to poop a lot. And their, their injury is that they poop all the time. Is that what your lost strength is? You can't hold it in any longer? I think that'd be, would that be con or strength? No, it'd be strength. The sphincter's a muscle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Fair, yeah. Uh, I think that this podcast has enough shit posting without you guys carrying on. Damn. <laughs> wow, harsh. <laughs> so what are other thoughts on permanent injuries? Would you let another player perform surgery? Or would you let one agent perform surgery on another agent to recover from one of the um, injury types? Yeah, that actually sounds pretty good. What are you going to do? Sew his arm back on? Yes. I'm not, I'm not sure why you would need to. I mean, yes, but I don't know why. I'm thinking of the rules for poisoning, where it says if you use pharmacy to deliver an antidote, you can have the damage. That might be a good way of doing it. Like, if you're going to use stat damage, oh, yeah. then a successful surgery roll can have whatever uh, stat damage you suffer. And maybe uh, if you do the surgery roll on a lost body part, you can reattach it, I guess, and save it. Yeah, you, you prevent nerve damage from occurring like on the spot before you can get to a hospital or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, so maybe that can prevent the penalty. It's a neat rule, and I think those are some pretty good tools for any hand in their toolbox. Yeah, that's pretty clever. And surgery is one of those specialized skills that doesn't see a lot of use. So something like this, where it can be more relevant in a crisis situation, that's a good idea. I am definitely in favor of mm, circumstances in which surgery could be useful or even used at all. So yeah, I like that. I guess I would, unless it's a time-based thing, like you have to perform surgery now, uh, unless your person is much better than a like trauma, you know, level one trauma center, I think you're better off procuring medical care uh, if you want the best role. I mean, pick that arm up and put it on ice. Put it in milk. So you do with teeth, right? Yeah. Chief, Wait, you were it? complaining earlier that um, a bad enough injury would just make you retire a character. Yeah, uh, I've, I'd thought about it because, I don't know, I was padding a little bit because all my skills were just so reduced by that 20% penalty for the uh, physical injury that it, um, if I didn't retire Cassius, that I thought he would die because having that penalty on one of the rolls means that I'm just like one step above death. If I have to roll firearms with a 20% penalty, then I'm 20% less likely to win any firefight. So, and that's like permanent uh not anymore just gotta remember to use your aim actions you got a cybernetic eyeball yeah cybernetic eyeball there you go i think that's partially because i was responsible for that happening to agent cassius so i do apologize for that i wouldn't handle it the same way i did then no it's but fine then, i need to stop being such a baby about it yeah. <laughs> well yes but uh that's no i can also- i can fully <laughs> recognize that sentiment of like this character has so many negative modifiers that it's not like a fun disorder or you know like a price i paid for getting a spell it's just something that makes me just less useful across the board and makes me unable to do the thing that the character is built to do right and that's sort of why i came around on stat damage for a campaign because it can be less severe and it's easier to recover from. But the flip side of that is I think lost body parts are good if you're just doing a one-shot, because then you can keep the tension really high. I disagree. I think permanent stat damage uh, in terms of numbers can be just as awful. If you get a malice to your HP that's that cuts your HP in half, or if you get a dexterity penalty that means that you always go last in a gunfight and your character is built on any of those things you're in trouble it's it can be just as bad and the reason why we don't think about it just as bad is i've kind of convinced most people on the server to do body parts rather than um stat damage but in the alternate reality where everyone did stat damage you guys would be complaining about the same thing you'd just be complaining with different specifics 
but here's the thing like the game has a built-in mechanism for recovering lost stat points if you get uh, a lost body part that modifier is on you forever as written i don't personally have a problem with um the case of characters that accumulate so many injuries and penalties they eventually become unplayable in that case that's an agent who has become so scarred and broken by by his their experiences with delta green that they have to be retired from field work because they are no longer physically able to do the job i think it's just another example of the kind of death spiral thing that makes Delta Green, which is fundamentally a game that could be described as as a disempowerment fantasy, uh, work thematically. So it's a question, because there's a choice between stat loss and limb loss, right? If you make the decision after you roll, you can kind of meta game. If you roll an 11, well, you've probably succeeded. But if you roll a, a low number, like a 3 as your low number, right? Uh, like a 93 or a 91, one stat damage is basically nothing. You can move on. But if you have, so I almost want to make players choose before they roll the con save. Like, all right, make a con save before you roll it. If you fail, what happens? Yeah, that's um, making the player choose between the permanent injury and the stat damage is a convention that I, I use. It's on the rules. And that is exactly what I do for exactly the reason you've outlined. It's sort of like the difference between do you want to use point by to generate your stats or do you want to roll the dice? You decide before you, no, you assign roll the first. Roll and then if it's by. terrible, you use point by. Yeah, no. You want to you want to roll the dice, you roll the dice. You want to take the statistic. You want to take the statistically level option. You take that. And some players want to have that level of control. So they want to take a they want up for the the known quantity and then other players want to they want to roll the dice they want to play the odds and i do not fault either player for their choice i wonder if you could figure out a way to start with a permanent injury but like trade it for more like character building points essentially um so what i would do is i would say um in addition to all the other damage veteran packages you can have a damage veteran package that is um one point each from strength, constitution, and dexterity to make your character old. But in exchange, you get like a better position at your profession. So like you can be you can be an agent in charge as a federal agent, or you can be a like the head of a laboratory instead of just a regular scientist or something. Yeah, you can already just make yourself agent in charge. Well, no, because as the handler, I can say no. I haven't drafted mechanics for being a boomer. I'd like a little bit more stat, or uh, sorry, skill points in exchange for losing stats. There's already a thing that gives you skill points, though. Yeah, I was saying you take another disadvantage to get more skill points. Especially if someone's going to be older, they have had a chance to build up more special skills. If you want to play a grizzled boomer who has more skill points, use hard experience. I don't want to. What I'm saying is, can we come up with another selectable package? What I'm saying is, I would want to make it different from the damaged veteran packages that give you skills because I would want to give a player a reason to take it instead of the damaged veteran packages or vice versa. What I'm concerned about is is making making it a skill thing turns it into a game of, well, which of these is more mechanically optimal? And I don't like that. So what's the benefit of taking a permanently injured veteran package? I just told you, you if you take it, you lose the three stats. Yeah, but that's a meaningless, like that doesn't, like ranking a job isn't a skill on a character sheet. So it doesn't, it's a meaningless thing. Maybe it should be. Right. Here's That's the a whole other discussion. Here's here's the thing, Kevin. Is that I can't believe I'm the one telling you this, but there's more to this game than just numeric skills. I mean, yeah, but I was saying if if you're going to take something that decreases numbers on my sheet, it should also increase other numbers. Like oh, all right. Well, I'm not I'm not do. I'm not doing it because I care about how you build your characters. All right. So we can't come up with one because we're all terrible at this. 
No, I'm I'm pretty happy with the one I got. I like the one Melon proposed to. Yeah, um, because meaningless. No, it's not. I don't think so. I would well, assume. Like I'm saying, all right. So I make okay. a I make a Coast Guard character, and I can choose to make him a fucking admiral or a fucking boot camp guy. There's no. The only the, there's no mechanical advantage to either one of those. Aside from you could arguably have more money. Is there no the mechanical battle. advantage to to controlling a fleet of guys in patrol boats with big ass weapons? Sure, but so I could, so I should make all my characters just really advanced in their jobs from now on. Well, yeah, that's what this mechanic is for. I don't need this mechanic. I can just make it. No, no. What you need is you need the handler's approval. And if I were your handler, I'd say, all right. So since you're older, we're gonna tank some of your stats a little bit to represent the fact that you're a grizzled boomer. You're not convincing. If if I'm your handler, then I'm the person needs to be convinced. I mean, yeah. Well, well, one, we we tend to play in a setting where there is no handler approval because it's a giant bunch of handlers. Well, right. I don't I'm use saying, I don't use like, basically any of the that I've come up with in Night yeah. of the Opera. So you're absolutely right. So, like, yeah, I wouldn't use it there, but I don't use any of my house rules there. I'm just saying, in, the, in the rule book, there's no place where you pick your like job level for lack right, of a better that's term. why i'm suggesting adding one and that's why this is a mechanic that we're making up on the spot here rather than one that already exists my argument is i don't want to create two new rules but so I, if we're going to make a damaged a permanently injured veteran package and of course we are all we said is old age which isn't really a permanent injury but beside the point i'd rather tie it to an existing mechanic so the one the, like being the problem of having the wealthy like tab is actually a pretty good pretty good way to do it well, there is there is a mechanic for making your official requisitions better. It's called um, like making it a high priority. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it, if you're if you're a boomer, then all your requisitions are high priority, and your acquisitions are from a wealthy man. Of course. Now we're back to the the question of I wouldn't really consider old age a permanent injury. So <laughs> the only way it's not permanent is if you're going to go start eating people and like regenerating your your youth from magic yeah. powers. But all right, I can't get hit by a rocket and as a, as a disadvantage become old. I mean, depends on how fast the rocket's going. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but so what I'm saying is, can I create a character that starts off with like one eye and and because of that, take some sort of a beneficial bonus? Yeah, Thompson like- did that when he wrote his French Delta Green. He said that everyone has to start with either a physical injury or mental disorder and exchange to get more skill points. How yeah, many do you so- give? Um, I go back and look at the friggin' Reddit post. Hang on. My only concern with that is I, I would ask that player, well, why do you want to start with an injury? And if the answer is because I get more skill points that way, then we may have some philosophical differences about how to play Delta Green. Know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, like I, I, I don't have an, I don't object to skill points to offset a disadvantage, but I don't like the idea of I'm going to take this disadvantage to get better at the things I want to be better at. Like that was the problem with character creation and like with the the, tra- the traits and the flaws and drawbacks and stuff that Dungeons and Dragons had was it it trends towards just min maxing by dumping the things I don't want and using that offset to boost the things that I do want. Have you ever played GURPS? No, 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 no. GURPS, no. GURPS is GURPS is fine, but it's it's like that. Like if you really want to min max, like, all your characters should be like like angry. You pick all like the negatives that really don't matter or like role playing traits, and then you just ignore them. Oh yeah, Eclipse Phase did that too. Like I'm really uh, abrasive. All right, with all that means is I'm an asshole, but I get some more stats. All right, this. you get you get twenty percent of skills, so you get a single bonus skill. That's probably reasonable. Well, no, because it's worse than um, it's just it's just straight up mechanically worse than uh, hard experience because hard experience gives you fifty points. So I understand that not everything is about points, but I don't want to have one option that's just strictly worse than another because that 
Because if that's the case, then it will be all about points. So what do you think a more reasonable figure would be? Yeah, I think that... Because um, I know that you didn't want to make it just another 50 because you felt that that made it too duplicative of losing a bond, which is kind of why I didn't want to do giving more skill points. I'm trying to think of what other advantage it would give you. So I guess permanent injuries for me, I just I just don't bother with them that often. It don't really come up. I got other stuff to deal with in combat, and characters just don't last long enough for me to get into the weeds. Like, I really do think a player would have to say, oh, do I get a permanent injury for me to be like, oh, sure, roll for it. And maybe that's just shitty jamming, and I'll accept that, but I don't know. They just don't come up that often. I haven't come up fairly often, but usually what happens is they just, they pass the roll, so it ends up not mattering either Yeah, that's the thing, is the the average person will succeed at least half the time, and the average Delta Green agent will succeed about 60% of the time, because if if we're assuming 12 is across the board... And aren't you, don't you also make a roll to not pass out? No, passing out is automatic. You need to roll to avoid being stunned if you take more than 50% damage. Actually, it's not, it's not a roll to, actually, it's not actually a roll to avoid being stunned. It's a roll to recover from the stun. The stun is automatic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm used to making, having that roll be made. So making two, like if somebody got knocked down to one HP, which is more than half, it'd be weird to make him make two rolls unless it's the same roll, but that's you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to roll to recover from stunned if you're unconscious because you're just unconscious. This this is an eclipse phase. But now here's the other thing. Um, you technically have to make two saving throws when you come out of, um, unconscious. You have to make the, uh, permanent injury save, and then you also have to roll sand for being reduced to two HP or less. Maybe it is a flip face. So the rules for permanent injury come up when the rules for uh, outright killing an agent don't work. But um, do you guys want to talk about death? Sure. Uh, mechanically, it's represented by someone dropping two HP, uh, dropping their HP down to zero. Uh, or less. Explicit, I mean, explicitly it says HP does not go below zero, but it goes below zero, right? Well, so 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 the way the book says, hand, is, is, yeah, is, is that it's completely up to the handler because HP doesn't go below zero. Lethality takes you to zero exactly. Um, and then it's up to the handler whether you got injured so badly that you can't be recovered or whether someone can resuscitate you with a, um, I think it's first aid, right? Yeah, yeah. I personally, um, I personally do allow HP to go below zero, and I only allow resuscitation exactly zero because I feel like my games aren't that dangerous. Generally, it's pretty rare for a character to um, to actually die, and I'm not going to put in that additional safeguard to something that's already kind of rare. I think, like games tend to be if a character gets hit with something big, it tends to be somebody that they're just absolutely toast. Or they're just getting blinked away to get armor and they're losing, you know, four or five HP at a time. So I don't think the exact resuscitation really ever comes up for me either. I think that um, the reason, the other reason why I don't use resuscitation is that every time I have uh, actually tried to think about like, okay, was that an injury that you could be resuscitated from or was that an injury that would kill you? It's always felt really gratuitously unfair. So I've always thought afterwards, why did I let that guy come back to life, but not that other guy? You know, why Why is it that being blown up is different from being shot or bitten or set on fire or whatever? What? Which one is really more survivable um, and which, you know, which one is, is more fair to the player? And so after a while, I was just like, fuck it, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's fair. I don't have a hard and fast rule about when I would or would not allow you to resuscitate somebody. I typically just feel it out. Uh, I do actually have one hard and fast rule, which is you can never come back from a successful lethality attack because that's just way too much trauma to your body to come back from. Right. Plus, successful lethality attacks are pretty rare. Usually, it's 2d10 damage. And the 2d10s usually would put someone uh, in the red. Yeah, even if you uh, miss that 10% or whatever, that's still a hefty chunk of change. 
What about, um, you know, I think I would tend, as it doesn't come up that often for me, but I think that I would tend more towards allowing players to make first aid tests because uh, first aid is a skill you have to buy in on. I think it starts at 10% as like a base, but if a character has a high first aid, I want them to be able to use their skills. So yeah, go for it. I kind of feel the same way. Like there's this balancing act between, you know, I want your skills to be useful and I don't want players to just get, you know, ejected from the game. But at the same time, I don't want to lean too hard in that direction because then I'm concerned that maybe, maybe I'm being too soft, you know? No, you're not being too soft. The game is too hard. Yeah, there's enough shit that kills you in this game. Yeah, I think that's actually a fair criterion that there's somebody who can deliver first aid right there and they haven't been killed or incapacitated by combat themselves or are suffering a temp or something from what's going on. It's also a good idea for a sanity roll if you fail, you know, because then that's definitely like a tick on the helplessness. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you, you tried to save that guy and he died in your arms. It's probably already going to happen if that's a Delta Green bond. <laughs> God. So then it's like the person you were bonded to died in your arms and you couldn't yeah. save them. Yeah, you might even like apply a penalty to the sand check or something. Yeah, that's a little more than just you You couldn't save that. That's, that's, that's almost like, oh man, did I actually kill him? He saved your life once and you couldn't do the same for him. What's wrong with you? Worst friend. That's good. I like that. So if you're playing and you get one of these injuries, do you guys do anything special to try and carry that across in your character? Is it just something you run with or do you... I don't think I've ever had a character get a permanent injury. Yeah, if you've lost a leg, it's kind of hard to run with. Boom. I think, but yeah, I've never had a character that um, had a permanent injury. They always just end up dead or um, getting away with it because um, I think all the characters that I've had who have died have been insta-killed rather than like taking HP chip damage down to 2 HP. I think there's a fine line between, you know, like say you lost an eye and you can't do your job very good anymore between role-playing that here and there and then the root is good and then the negative like that it's all consuming and that's all you do. So like if that's the only thing you if you're just going to role-play that one aspect and play it up every single time, it becomes silly. But if it comes up here and there, that's great. My idea was that the next time you lose points from a bond, whether because of something that comes up in game where you just choose to project, as a GM, I would ask, how has your recent injury affected that relationship? They've got to be curious how you just came home one day and you were missing an eye or you had a prosthetic leg. There's even a spot on the character sheet for you to mark this. Uh, what is it? Developments, which may affect home life. I don't think anyone ever really uses that sheet or that portion I, of the sheet. Yeah, I always forget that it's there, yeah. Yeah, just at the open table, it's hard to keep up any kind of running subplots with anybody's home life. It's definitely something that a player has to be invested in and they have to buy into it. Like They have to approach you, especially at an open table, and be like, Hey, my guy's missing an eye. Uh, it affects pretty much all my skills. Um, try and bring it up when you can. If not, I'll try and remind you. I think that's fine. Uh, and for uh, another reference on this, you can go back to the episode where we uh, we played the lift because that's a part of that, right? Yeah, that's a very good example of it. We don't get a whole lot of uh, like rolling out home scenes here at uh, the open table. Because of the volume of players, I guess, and the high turnover rate. And but, uh, because of the format, yeah. But I think it's good. I think that, you know, I mean, even if it's just like, you know, how does your uh, how does your wife react when you walk home with a bullet hole in your arm? 
something like that, you know, or uh, you're at the hospital and your your wife comes in, what does she do? Or just a little back and forth, I think would be nice. I mean, you're the, you're the only one here who's married. Ask your wife how she would respond if you came home with a bullet hole. Oh, I can ask her. I mean, for him, it's an expected, like, oh, risk of his job, however minor. He doesn't want to talk. <laughs> I read a blog post recently about fudging your die rolls, and that's not what I want to talk about, though. The most salient point to me was that fudging your rolls is kind of a symptom of calling for dice rolls when you shouldn't. And for me, the biggest reason I call for a dice roll and then regret it is because someone rolled a fumble that I was not prepared to deal with. So I was curious if you guys have any principles you have for like dealing with fumbles. Do you have any go-to results for that sort of thing? Well, first of all, I think you've hit on something really important, which is I, I think a, a wise a wise man, I think, said this once, uh, should never ask for a die roll unless you're prepared to deal with the consequences. Maybe I just made that up. Oh yeah, that is something I've learned the hard way. I have multiple times had people either critically succeed or fumble rolls that were just kind of filler, and I realized, oh shit, I don't have anything for this. So how can you not be prepared for a failure roll, or for a fumble roll? Like, what do you mean? Well, that's the thing. It's just like, it's a roll I guess sometimes just to fill up time like i'm not sure what would happen so i'm gonna have you make the roll while i decide what would happen and then it comes out with a really extreme result and i realize oh now i have to do a really extreme i mean i i I think you're right i'm just pushing because i want to try to you know eke out the uh the truth here but i mean a fumble is just a failure but worse so you know what would happen in a failure you just make that you know times make it to 11 right but that's the thing sometimes i just freeze up and i'm not sure in the moment so as a, I guess, as a reflex, I will call her reaction when the smarter thing is just to say, yes, that happens, or no, that doesn't happen. Uh, speaking for myself, I know I have been in situations where a player has done something, and I am hesitant to give a firm yes or no, because I honestly had not considered that. Or sometimes, frankly, sometimes I've been in a position where a player wants to do something and they're having a really hard time of it. They're having like a bad streak or they're in a, in a sour mood and I just don't want to make it worse. So I don't want to say, no, you can't do that. So I say roll instead. And, you know, I I tend to immediately regret that because then it results in something I wasn't expecting. I I have a caveat for that. So uh, someone says, can I do this thing? And you don't have an opinion one way or another. So you tell them to roll for it. I don't know. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because uh, you're giving them a grammar lesson. No. So instead of just saying, sure, roll for it, say, how are you going to do that? How are you going to get that information? How are you going to accomplish this thing? Tell me what you're doing. Because okay, yeah. it, it, it's like, you know, the thing you've talked about before. I roll human at the guy. All right, well, what are you looking for? How are you hoping to ascertain the thing that you're looking for? Well, maybe another question to ask, rather than how are you going to go about that? If a player throws an unexpected action at you, maybe what you should ask instead is, what's your end game here? What are you trying? What's the goal you're trying to achieve? Right. And the, the whole reason that I, I bring up the, the how are you going to do that is because it, um, I've talked about it before, but Apocalypse World, uh, in it, it says to do something, do it. So instead of, you know, saying I'm going to roll skill, you have to say, 
uh, I want to look into this guy's finances or I want to see if there's anything in this guy's uh, garage. So the things there, you know, well, you're going to need to get his tax paperwork. So how are you going to do that? Or, you know, I'm going to need to break into his garage or, or whatever. Right. So to, to, to do something, you got to do it. You ask people how to do it. And then you have basically uh, you, you can visualize or you can kind of think about what the consequences are going to be for failure. Because sometimes a failure is just a failure. You know, it's a binary. It's a yes, no, it's a pass fail. But um, if there's a fumble, then something interesting can happen. If not immediately, then you can just kind of put it in your pocket and save it for later as something else to come, you know, bite them in the butt. And now you're thinking like Star Wars. Uh, I, I want to address Tom's first question, though, which is, or one of his first issue, which again, I, I pushed him on knowing the answer. Um, if you if a, if a player says, let me roll for this, and they fumble, and you become, you kind of freeze up because you're, you're like, oh, crap, I wasn't ready for this. One of the things I like to do is just put it back on them. So, you know, they're like, I want to uh, break into this guy's garage. Okay, so uh, give me a, you know, give me a stealth roll. Oh, you know, fumble. Well, what happens? Man, you know. Make make them figure if it the out. If the thing they say isn't bad enough, then you say, "No, no, 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 that's not bad enough. I need, I need worse." And <laughs> make them the, the own masters of their demise. There's a few. So one, either either. So a few things can happen, right? One, they can come up with a, a perfectly acceptable fumble. Great. All right, you set off the alarm. Cool. Uh, or or they can they can lowball you. But when they lowball you, they they tip their hand into what they really didn't want to have happen. Oh, what they're afraid and then, of. And, and then you're like, <laughs> oh well, well. You clearly, you know, so if, you know, if, if, if they don't want, if they don't want the alarm to go off and they lowball you with, uh, oh, you know, I, um, you know, uh, I break a window, you know, or I, uh, you know, I, I, I set a jewelry lock and a neighbor starts to see me. Oh yeah. Well, and, and you set the alarm off, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it gives you something to riff back on them on, uh, which is key. And then, you know, I really like what you said about, uh, saving things. Uh, I talk a lot about the Star Wars Edge of the, uh, Star Wars uh, Fantasy Flight games, and uh, you can like save up despairs and 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 other bad things, and just slowly trickle them in when the players least need it, and that's a lot of fun. See, I like that one, Kevin, because it's part of the reason why I thought when I was coming up with this, I was thinking that a critical success is actually easier than a fumble, because if you're stuck for something, you can just ask the player, "All right, what do you think would really make your life easy right now?" But this is sort of turning it the other way and just inviting them to kind of control their fate, I guess. And I think most players who play Delta Green, this is a little, a little bit of generalization, but most of them enjoy when things go badly. Most people don't play Delta Green to, to get to level 20 and slay the dragon. So they almost, like a good Delta Green player, Relish has a chance to get their agent into some shit. So if you give them a chance to come up with what happens on a fumble, they're probably going to come up with something really cool. Especially if, if, if they know their character and they're really into it, it'll relate to them. Um, one of the characters that, one of the pre-gen characters that I offered up at the last two conventions, one of their big motivations is not getting caught. And some of the good players, like at all costs, some of the good players who played that uh, in, at that PC, whenever they would fumble, would immediately give themselves a situation where they would like leave a paper trailer, start getting caught, and then it would they would have to then go clean that up because like they won't get cut at any costs. They have to fix this now. It's good. Delt Screen's a game about consequences. So, you know, if, if if even if nothing does come of a fumble like in the moment, go behind your handler's screen, look at your notes where you're keeping notes and keep track of like, you know, uh, major fuck ups or major fumbles for later, right? You know, set alarm off or uh 
uh, use their real name when they bought a, uh, a rental car, you know, what, whatever it is that you want to focus on for later, because there's, I mean, there's tons of rules in the agent's handbook for, for that, right? I can just see them like they accidentally used a company or agency credit card instead of their personal card to buy something like that. And now someone from the office is calling, hey, why the hell are you here? We thought you were on sick leave or at a funeral or something. Right, yeah, the the official review mechanic from the handbook, it's there. And I don't think I've ever seen that used once. Well, that's because a smart player would never, ever uh, misappropriate uh, government funds for anything, right? Nobody would nobody would ever, ever do that, right? See, this is... <laughs> no, no one would ever even think of doing such a heinous crime. Uh, this is actually one of the ideas I had for handling fumbles. Like, we don't tap on bonds a lot at NATO just because there's kind of a, a rotating circle of players so you can't really develop anyone's home life too stringently but or too strongly I mean we don't do this a lot at NATO because we have kind of a rotating circle of players so we can't develop anyone's home life too extensively but if you have a regular circle of players and you're kind of into exploring that side of things you could have one of the agent's bonds just suddenly but into their Delta Green business, like your spouse calls you while you're on a stakeout to say goodnight to the kids or somebody at the office needs uh, you to forward them some kind of file. And it doesn't take too long, but it's just at a really inconvenient moment and it distracts you from whatever you're trying to do. And there's nothing stopping you from just blowing them off. But if you do that, you might lose a point or two from the bond. I remember Dennis or Glancy, I think, um, bringing this up, not this year, but the year before we talked to the Gen Con, you know, sneaking, sneaking through the cult hideout. And then all of a sudden your cell phone rings. Right. I was thinking this would be the way you recreate that sort of moment rather than just having it be GM Fiat. It's like you fumble your stealth roll. Well, you're about to make it all the way across the room. And then, you know, your ringtone starts blaring at full volume. Something really obnoxious. Plus, we've we've also talked about um, clocks on this. You know, some sort of a something that you can fill up. So, you know, the first fumble maybe isn't that bad, but it makes the stakes higher for the next one or the next one. Um, you know, or maybe the first fumble. You know, maybe in your mind you were only going to make them roll to get into the guy's house, and then they're going to get all the clues inside. Now that they fumbled, now they got to roll for each one. They can actually maybe destroy some of the clues, you know, that kind of thing. So. Assuming you can communicate that to the players without just explaining that it's a clock. I do love clocks, man. So, like the I heard that about you, but maybe I just misunderstood. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> I forgot what I was. Gonna... Oh yeah, I was talking about clocks. Um, Tom, you mentioned at the beginning that the article you read was about uh, fudging dice rolls. You know, that's where you know uh, uh, GM rolls behind the screen and the players never see the result of the dice roll. So really, it's just whatever the GM wants to happen, right? And sometimes, I you know, you, fudger. you see the... Well, we'll talk about that some other time and why you should or shouldn't do that. But anyways, like when, when uh, the GM starts shaking his dice behind the screen and he rolls them and then he smiles, like everyone at the table gets like really, really nervous, you know? Uh, the same thing can be accomplished by, you know, you, you, you roll a fumble and then uh, on your notebook, you start writing something down and that player's going to get nervous. It's the same thing as if you just, you know, rolled dice behind the, the screen and smiled a little bit. But uh, you could just be doing like a progress clock 
and they know that you're up to something and they know something's bad. And that's a good way to kind of simulate the stress that an agent might be feeling, knowing that they just, you know, either did or didn't do a great job. They don't really know until, you know, everything's all said and done. So your player rolls a fumble. You look at him and you're like, are you, are you wearing armor? How much? Three? Okay. Yeah, yeah man. You, okay. Yeah, you, you, uh, yeah. you open the door. What's the, what's next? They're like, you don't have to do anything, and you you put them 100 percent on tilt with with just a simple question, which is good, man. The the high the higher the stakes, the more fun the game is, really. Uh, but that's that's good. Uh, progress clocks. Um, my my thing about that is that when you port it over from, uh, th- there's really no way to. There is a way to critically fail a roll in like blades, but. Um, a fumble should like fill up a progress clock in Delta Green if you're uh, if the circumstances are right. Like it should it should either immediately trigger something bad or something bad should absolutely happen like later on down the line. And that backpedal just a little bit because I did want to talk about um, something else that I'd borrow from another game. Um, almost every powered by the apocalypse game has uh, soft moves and hard moves. I'm just pausing here because I was waiting for Kevin to make like a sex joke or something. I mean, that would be inappropriate and unprofessional, so I would never. This is a family podcast, sir. Clean it up. So like they have um, instead of like a binary degree of success, it's like a trinary, um, I guess. Is that even a word? Uh, anyways, like because you roll 2d6 and then you can get a uh, six or below is like a failure. A uh, seven to nine is a mixed success. And those are, if you think about 2d6 distribution, those are like your more common things. So like a mixed success is like a success with a complication or like, uh, if you think about it, like your narrative dice, Kevin, you know, you can have like, it sounds like they ripped off Star Wars, but what? Oh, well, they also don't have to have proprietary dice because you can just use any old D6 you get out of a board game. You but anyways, any die for the Star Wars dice, it's fine. Anyways. And then 10 to 12 is like straight success. Um, so, like, sometimes with that mixed success, you get what's called a soft move. It's, you know, sort of like a fail forward thing. And I've seen people suggest kind of putting soft moves into Delta Green. It could be something minor like uh, losing a piece of equipment. You know, uh, like if you're if you're navigating down a, a tunnel, you uh, have your flashlight and your roll search or alertness or something if a situation calls for rolling of course um and you fall and you drop your flashlight and your flashlight breaks and like you still move, like moving things forward or maybe you saw a glimpse of something and you it startled you and you uh drop your flashlight you know that's that's like one one thing is take something away from the players to make things more complicated or more interesting uh soft moves are also like a setup like you can say uh yeah the guard stands up from his shack and he starts moving around to investigate maybe a noise you made what do you do you know like you put the emphasis back on the players uh because the game's still got to go forward on a failure you know someone gets hurt is a suggestion um someone gets caught in doing what they were trying to do if they're doing it sneaky um so but like a like a critical failure that should be a hard move like serious consequences triggering a silent alarm and bringing the police in uh things like that um i I know i've talked about this before uh one of the things i do so there's a a game a scenario i wrote where the players in order to get a clue 
that they're absolutely going to get. They have to go to this, guy, old, this old guy's safe house. And while they're there, they're going to have an introduction to the antagonists of the scenario. No matter, like, I don't care what they do, that's, that's, that is going to happen. Now, how it happens varies. If they, if they break in and the alarm goes off, then the antagonist shows up to investigate the alarm. If they break in and they disable the alarm, then the antagonist shows up canvassing for a missing child. You know what I mean? Like, so it doesn't really matter what happens. So you can, you know, if you know that the players need to sneak into this, break into this guy's garage to get the MacGuffin, if they critical fumble, or, you know, if they fumble, they're still going to get it. It's just going to be bad. If they critical succeed, they're just, they're still going to get it. It's just going to be good. And if they make a regular roll, they're just going to get it. It's going to be okay. So you can still get to your, the, point you need to get to it's just a little worse or a little better it sounds like you're describing the the quantum ogre there um does it live in a swamp and listen to smash mouth can neither confirm nor deny so the quantum ogre is jesus this um i don't remember where it came from but it's one of those rpg game design blogs oh yeah the guy Uh, who did it was named schrodoger no, I, I don't believe it was. This may be a rare circumstance where we are, in fact, not ripping off of the Alexandrian, because I don't think this is on the Alexandrian. I think it's on some other blog. But Yeah, um, I think it, it existed before he came around. The Quantum Ogre kind of summarizes this idea. Put simply, uh, so you're, you're running a game for your buddies, and they have the choice of proceeding to their destination by cutting through the creepy woods or going around along the coastline. If they cut through the creepy woods, well, then they fight an ogre. And if they go along the coastline, well, then they also fight the same ogre because that's what you prepared. And the question the quantum ogre poses to the reader is, uh, obviously this conserves GM preparation resources. Does it negate player agency if the outcome is the same no matter what they do? No. The idea is it's basically a railroad with the illusion of choice. Yes. I mean, is the criticism of it. That is well, that is the, the thought the, the what the thought experiment is 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 asking. Yeah, is is this actually is this a railroad or is this enabling player agency? If they never look at my notes, they're never really gonna know the difference, are they? Well, I mean that's that's the deeper philosophical question is is you know So I think it's it's only a railroad if if that ogre encounter is a fight every time. Uh, they and, and no one can expect a, head, in, a dungeon master to create eight thousand different things. So, in if the thought experiment, it is the same encounter regardless of where they go. Yeah, well, and then that's a thought experiments are dominate them. But if they're going to encounter the ogre no matter what, if they're able to fight the ogre or sneak past the ogre or talk the ogre down or engage him in a battle of thought experiments that are stupid from the internet, then the players have agency. They can do whatever they want. Or they can maybe just like, scout the ogre out and avoid it. But if you're just going to force a fight every time, then if you're just running them, and that's bad. And that's where I stand on that. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I feel as though you may have missed the point of the thought experiment. I didn't mean to go to your TED Talk. I was trying to walk into this cave over here find some yeah. treasure, but <laughs> apparently you're holding your TED Talk in a cave. You were the, always the real, you were always going to go to my TED talk. The re, yeah, yeah, I, I I came into this cave for a TED talk, and all I can see are shadows of the true forms. Oh, nice one! The real TED talk was the friends we made along the way. Well, at least you know you know nothing, and so that's good. I have known for a long time that you know nothing. <laughs> um, so well, that's not what I said. So, I so what else? What else do we have for for fumbles here? Um, um, I've got a thing. If nobody else wants to go, I have I have something to build off clocks a little bit. Build. Build. So I also like clocks because they kind of tap into another thing I was thinking where when you're designing a scenario, you kind of come up with predetermined effects for a fumble. Like I wrote a shotgun scenario a couple years ago called If Only in My Dreams. And the basic 
thrust of the gameplay is that it's a 90s scenario. The players are racing a couple of guys from NRO Delta to find this missing kid. And basically, I said to keep things moving quickly, anytime the players roll a fumble, no matter what the roll is for, uh, the NRO guys suddenly catch up to them and arrive in the scene. So that keeps them, that adds another complication for them to deal with while they're looking for clues. That's that's, cool. that's good. What's that? It's like a um, a tool for getting past rider's block is like when you're, when you're riding something, uh, if you're stuck, someone enters the room with a gun. Yeah, exactly. But I was thinking like you could do sort of a similar thing with uh, with a clock, like just strip out that one line, put a clock in there. And depending on how long it takes the players to find clues, like the NRO guys fill in their clock. If they gain a certain number of segments, they suddenly show up in the scene. And then at the end, depending on how full their clock is, Maybe they're behind you, you arrive there first, maybe they get there at the same time, or if they've got a full clock, then they actually beat you there. Like, I think we kind of came to the same, uh, we kind of came to a similar approach, just with different mechanics. Right, clock versus, uh, like I said, you know, the fumble should be pretty egregious if the circumstances are right, and uh, sometimes the circumstances are right because you want to speed things up. Right. Sort of the thing I was thinking was that the NRO guys would have credentials to pass themselves off as FBI guys. So wherever they would go, they would look official and they would be able to get cops to do whatever they wanted. Whereas you were just a bunch of random people. You didn't have any real authority. So suddenly there would be a lot more eyes on you if you were doing something sketchy in the process of performing that fumble, whatever you're trying to do. You know, so now, now that I think about it. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was just going to say, so it was something to keep you like, it wouldn't immediately screw you over, but it was a strong encouragement to wrap up whatever you were doing because you didn't really have much more room to navigate here. I I unintentionally did a similar thing in my alphabet contest entry where um, there was a tool that the bad guy was using and the tool was treated as if it had like 99% in the skill. But if you rolled a 100, it was like super fucked up and it like basically like sanity blasted the bad guy. So that changed like the entire course of the whole scenario. You could kind of do the same thing for player character fumbles but that's like a one percent chance of that happening but that also um like if you talk about percentages and stuff tilt screens came about numbers if you look at the average character sheet uh what percentages people start off with if something is 10 percent or you know less like if somehow someone gets like you know one percent in law or one percent in heavy weapons or whatever if anything's less than ten percent when you roll the dice you almost have a greater chance of fumbling than you do for succeeding i think it's yeah i think it's even i think if you've got ten percent in a skill then you are as likely to roll the fumble because you've got all the all the critical numbers except for ought one are above 10 percent and there are instances in a couple of written scenarios where um it'll say use like if you're doing like a group action to use the person with the worst skill rating for that skill so uh there's a potential for some pretty bad fumbles there. Like stealth is one of them. That's pretty common too. You know, some how many times when you're on a Delta Green Op do you need a players to be sneaky? 
Yeah, and we've talked about that in other places. I think that highlights part of my thinking behind this segment was at what point, like, at what point do you make a fumble just a really bad blow to the players? Like, you're, you suffer a big loss, and to what extent is it just a really major complication where you're not immediately hurt by it, but it adds another ball you have to keep in the air or it limits your ability to kind of move around and navigate? I just thought of something else, too. Kevin, do you remember when we did the Night Visions playtest? And there was a moment near the end where someone was driving the vehicle we were all in away. And we kept failing the roll and nothing was happening on the failure. But then someone fumbled and we wrecked. Yeah. Um, that's a little odd because that, that whole combat takes place like on a table. So where you basically need to fumble to have, a, fumble to have anything bad happen. Um, but yeah, I remember. Does that uh, spark anything here for you? Because uh, no. to me, I just remember it feeling like the failures didn't matter at all. And it was basically like rolling the failure, but it wasn't necessarily like a bad thing, you know? It was, we were just, instead of rolling to failure, we were rolling till we fumbled. Rolling to fumble? Yeah. You had to rolling and to fumble. There's our there, episode title. title. Yes. I right, nothing else we got that out of that. That was good. In the Ages Handbook on page 44, there is a list of potential possible consequences um, from a fumble to be used if the handler is drawing a blank. And I don't think any, I've ever seen anyone actually use these, but these are like these are pretty good. Uh, the ones that it lists, this is under uh, the section on success and failure under how skills work, and it's under the heading for fumbles where it explains what a fumble is. And the examples it gives are as follows. Physical strain, lose 1d6 hit points or temporarily lose 1d4 from strength, con, or dex. Uh, Emotional burnout, lose 1d6 willpower or temporarily lose 1d6 from int, power, or charisma. Alienation, offend an important NPC. All charisma or persuade tests with that NPC automatically fail until the end of the op. Exhaustion, immediately become exhausted. Distraction, suffer a minus 20 penalty to your next test. And confusion, you gain false information. People tend towards that last one on investigative tests, probably without even realizing it's a suggestion in the book. I don't think I've ever seen any of the other ones used. And these are pretty, except for maybe the temporary stat loss, that seems kind of punishing. But distraction, these, uh, distraction stands out to me as a good one. Distraction also stands out to me as probably the best one there, yeah. Distraction is good. I know there are one or two handlers who really like to do the willpower loss on a fumble. Like it's just mentally draining. Shane does that all the time. That is one that I've seen once or twice. I don't really like exhaustion as a mechanic, so I don't like that one in particular. I think that should probably just be a consequence of willpower loss. Yeah, exhaustion is also pretty punishing. In fact, exhaustion is actually distraction, but worse. Yeah, it's because it's ongoing and continuous. Yeah, because it's ongoing for like the rest of the in-game day. And it also means you're going to fail your sand tests. You're going to fail all your skill checks. Exhaustion is super, super punishing. Hey, you know, uh, I would. I mean, I wouldn't totally discount it though. There's probably some situations in a game where exhaustion should be a thing. You know, like yeah. um, you know, if, if you're doing like a survival horror type thing, stranded in the Canadian wilderness per se. Oh, so like ninety percent of the country. Yeah, aren't you just exhausted all the time? Oh, all the time, especially in the winter when the sun rises for like three hours. 
spends 23 hours a day running from moose. Yes. There was a moose on the Anthony Handay, the highway that goes around uh, Edmonton a couple, a couple of weeks back. It's across the highway. See? Your civilization means nothing to these creatures. Moose are fucking terrifying. I'm going to write an epic scenario about moose. Well, you know why, you know why Canadian Canadian geese Canadian geese are so angry and hateful? Can I? Uh, like, why? Because that's atypical of a Canadian. Well, I realize that every Canadian is assigned a, a goose on, on birth, and all of their hate and anger goes into the goose. Who told you about that? Who told you know, me about that? Yeah, that's that's a good explanation for that uh, untitled goose game. It's yes. just what Canadians would do if they could get away with it. Yeah, except it's not a Canada goose. It's not. No, it's not. Have you ever seen a Canada goose, Jake? No. Uh, I'm afraid that I've never that. been to Canada before. So, so See, you live like way too far south. Jeez. Gray. Their necks are black. Is one of the distinguishing features. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen pictures. Then that, that one. That one in the Untitled Goose Game is just a regular old goose. Although he has the attitude of a Canada goose. Uh. So that table or that list there that's in the handbook that's good and there should be able to make up a few can you guys think of anything else that's cool like uh like what's on that list the ones that's in the agent's handbook a what for penalties for stuff like yeah what if you fumble uh, another penalty or um complication or whatever because it seems like these are you know they're meant to simulate uh hardship that you're suffering because you fumbled your role i think you could probably get away with like on a fumble it takes twice as long for whatever you were trying to do in the same way that a critical success is supposed to be half the time for whatever you're trying to do that's i can see that yeah that's a good one um i don't know why they didn't do a luck thing they really love luck mechanics everywhere else in the game so like could be like a luck test to whether or not you get caught doing whatever you're doing or whether or not like an egregious complication comes. Because um, that, if you look in the, the text for the agent's handbook and the paragraph that precedes this list, it says a fumble in a car or a fumble in a car chase means you crash. But like people are going to die because of that. You should at least, you know, <laughs> throw something else in. So it's not like a straight binary between life and death. Right, that's sort of, that's sort of what I was thinking of again. Like, okay, so is that just like a? It's ten percent lethality for every twenty-five miles per hour you going when you crash the car. So, is that just a straight ten percent lethality roll, or do people get like some kind of dex roll to get out of the car? Or you know, that's when you have to start asking people, "Do you have your seatbelts on?" Be honest. Yes. Of course, everybody has their seatbelt on. <laughs> Roll intelligence to see if you remember to put your seatbelt on or if you were too badass. I'll tell you, if a player's a cop, they probably don't have their seatbelt on because uh, cops tend to not wear their seatbelts. Unless you get into a pursuit, generally that's when they'll put that on because they know they're going to be driving high speed or whatever. Um, I'd never violate policy for anywhere that I worked. I'd always wear my seatbelt. Good save, Jake. That's all we have this week. In the episode description, you'll find a link to our Patreon page, which I've already shilled in the intro and don't need to mention again. You'll also see a link to the Night at the Opera subreddit and Discord server, and where you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and SoundCloud if you're not there already. Share with us your stories about how an unexpected die roll resulted in tragedy or hilarity. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Box. Until next time, we'll be in touch.